today. I'm having a gas with the, uh, what's the word they use? Meteorically rising, uh, preeminently very successful and very, very stylish Anna Lapwood, um, who is not disappointed with the wardrobe today. But I saw um, Anna was with a very, very, very famous person in the classical music world recently and uh, had on the most remarkably vibrant, uh, like pink jeans I've ever seen. <laughs> and so I had to kind of get, get slightly sort I, of I dressed like up. I like it. I like yeah. it. They're great trousers. Yeah, you know, on the way, we're both doing the boots thing. Yeah. Yep. Oh, you've got to have boots. You know. So, uh, why, so why are we here? Why am I talking to Anna Lapwood? Uh, Anna, what do you do here? We're in Pembroke College, Cambridge. We're in the chapel. Yeah, so I'm the director of music here. I run basically all of the music that happens in college. A lot of that is in the chapel. So I uh, conduct a couple of services a week in here and basically get to spend a lot of time in this incredible building. It's got, for people who can't see it, it's got this amazing like sculptured plaster ceiling. Um, it's really, really, really bright, wood panelling everywhere and it's a really beautiful space. So, and it sounds amazing. It does sound amazing. You yeah. can hear the lovely bloom to our voices. Do you, like, do, do, you, do you get requests to record in here for like, I don't know... You, you record albums and stuff, don't you? Yeah, we've recorded one album in here. It, it's quite funny though, because there's a road um, just like just outside the chapel. Yep. And so sometimes you're recording and they decide they're going to have, I don't know, like a hundred motorbikes going past. <laughs> and it always seems to happen on a recording day. So it, it can be a good space if it's quiet. Yeah. If it's not quiet, it can be quite comical. So uh, though, so that's one of the things. Uh, another of the things that Anna does is Anna is one of the probably now more famous organists in the world having blown up on TikTok um, so the the brief, well, the synopsis of that, how did that happen? How did you become a TikToker? <laughs> it's funny, I don't think I don't think of myself as a TikToker. Um, but actually, as I was getting you a coffee, um, someone stopped me in the street and was like, oh my gosh, you're on TikTok! Yep. Um, which I think is so cool for an organist. I yes. just think there's something so exciting about that. And it, it, it's sort of it's so incongruous with the stereotype of an organist and what an organist is. Um, but to answer your question, um, one of the girls in my girls' choir, or two of the girls actually, um, said to me when we were on a coach journey, they were doing a TikTok dance. And I said, what is this TikTok thing? Like, can you explain it to me? And I tried to learn the dance and it didn't go very well. Mm -hmm. But they said, oh, Miss Lapwood, you should definitely get TikTok. You'd be really good at it. And I sort of thought it was just dancing. I said, I will not be good at that. I yep. can tell you right now, my dance career stopped quite a long time ago, as it should have done. And they're like, no, 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 it's not just about dancing. It's about sharing passion and sharing... Um, your niche, basically. Yep. And there's an appetite for that. And so I kind of put out a couple of videos and thought, I do not get this at all. Um, because at the start, I think I was treating it just like any other social media and sort of copying and pasting my videos from there. Just copying an Instagram post over. Exactly. And hoping it would work, which it obviously didn't. Um, and then I kind of put a bit more time into it and I had my first viral video. I can't actually remember what it was, but I had my first video kind of go a little bit viral. And when we say a little bit, what do we mean? Um, I think with that, it was probably something like 50,000 likes, mm, mm. which is, it's really funny because virality, virality, virality yeah. is a different thing on each platform. So like on Twitter, if you get 10,000 likes, that's amazing. On TikTok, that's kind of average. Very low bar. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I think my, I had my first one that did that. And then I had loads of people kind of asking me uh, to play things. And I was like, well, I can't do that. I don't have time to do that. And then I thought, well, why don't I have time to do that? What if I tried it? And then and what if you all... wove it in with your actual routine practicing and yeah exactly yeah. and so it kind of um, yeah it all it all went from there right and so the third part of the complicated brew is that um, Anna has the fantastic privilege for those of you who are, for some reason watching this and don't know who Anna is <laughs> um, fantastic privilege of I believe being allowed to practice at the Royal Albert Hall mm. and on their sort of in. in, in I was going to say interstellar, like powered organ. That's a bit of an unfortunate accidental pun. It's an enormous, enormous space and enormous sound and a huge privilege. And so briefly, and we'll dive into any of these three things afterwards. How did you get, how did you get that? This has totally transformed my life in the last year, I have to say. Uh, it, it is, as you say, a huge privilege to be able to practice there. So they got in touch with me just over a year ago and said... They got in touch with you? Yeah, and said, we would love um, to talk to you about becoming one of our new associate artists. So this is a new thing. It's the first time they've done it. They have four associate artists um, for a three-year period. So it's me, Jess Gillum, saxophonist, mm -hmm. um, Corey Baker, who's an amazing choreographer, and Lionheart, who does spoken word. 
And the idea is um, they sort of tasked us with thinking about how we bring a new audience to the hall, but also to our niches. Mm -hmm. And for me with the organ, obviously I have to be there. I have to be in that space on that instrument. And so I've got the hiccups. I always get the hiccups when I get excited. We'll cut all of them out. (laughs) Every individual. I always get the hiccups when I get excited. Um, Yeah, so they basically uh, let me go in in the middle of the night. Um, It's in theory once a month, but in the last couple of months, it's felt more like once a week just because of the various things that have come up. Mm. Um, So yeah, I go in once a month and practice midnight till six in the morning. Midnight Um, till six? Yeah, that's my slot. (sighs) Okay. Um, but we'll uh, dig into the detail there uh, in a minute. But that being a associate artist at the Royal Albert Hall and also being very, very visible on TikTok um, is uh, a really rude. Chris is stepping right into my shot. And, you know, that's just, <laughs> this is this is protected space. <laughs> Sorry, was the microphone like right in front of my face? Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. No, 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 let's just keep it natural. Um being very visible on TikTok and being the associate artist at the Royal Albert Hall has led to um, some really, really huge things. I first saw you when you played with Bonobo, yeah, um, which is amazing. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. You have been entertaining Ludovico Ionaudi, Benedict Cumberbatch. And so, yeah, life is really uh, kicking into action. What, what, so I guess that's, that's where we are now. Yeah. Three major things that are... Um, really where the wheels are really moving uh how did you get here from you said you started doing this when you were 21 mm. what so start, start should we or should we start even earlier than that because i get the impression that you weren't always an organist and didn't always think this is where you're going to be going yeah i was a harpist first um well in fact if you go right back i was a pianist violinist um as a kid just loved trying out as many different instruments as i could how young did you start uh i don't know i should one day i'm going to sit down with my mum and be like right can we pin down these dates right so that early then i think i was about four um and but my brother was he's two years older and he started before me and so i watched him play and was like oh i want to be like him yeah yeah and so would kind of steal his books and like have a go um (laughs) but i so yeah i took up as many instruments as i could as a kid and um, I remember my music teacher being like, for goodness sake, Anna, if you want to be a musician, you've got to focus. And I was like, no, don't want to. No, I want to do um, it all. And I'm really, really glad I didn't because yeah. I didn't <laughs> find harp until I was 12, probably. Yep. Maybe a little bit younger. Um, and that became my first study. Um, I, my harp is actually just around the corner there. Oh, that's yours? Um, yeah, I haven't played it in a really long time. But um, Also, just as a quick side, is that harpsichord? That is a harpsichord. And is it well old? No. Oh, okay. Lots of stuff in here is really old. That's a lot of stuff is old. How old is this not. place we're in? Uh, uh, it was consecrated in 1665. 1665. So that's, again, my, my frame of reference is if it's before Bach, it's before history, you know what yeah, I mean? So. Yeah, yeah. Well, the organ is 1710 or originally 1710. It was then taken out and modified, but it's a reconstruction of a 1710 wow. instrument. So harp when you were 12, did you say? Yeah. And how, so how did you get into that? Because harp to me, it seems... Like, um, there's an old Eddie Izzard joke where he said the tuba should be, um, I think, commu- uh, community service. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like sentence year to year on the tuba because it's so difficult to get around. A harp mm. is a, a, a... How do yeah. you fall into playing the harp? You know what? I find it really interesting that what instrument you end up with is so much down to the inspirational people you have around you right. as a kid. And there was this incredible harp teacher at my junior school called Stephen Dunstan, and he, I'm still in touch with him actually. He's an amazing guy. He wrote all of his own music. And because of his energy, I think there were about 20 harpists mm-hmm. at this little primary school. Uh, and it would say there was a, a harp orchestra. Where was and this? In Oxford. It Oxford. was Headington um, Prep School. And it was just like the loveliest thing. And he made the lessons so much fun and really encouraged us to kind of improvise and do things like that. It was kind of very much fusing the classical with folk. Um, and that kind of unlocked a different side of the music world for me, mm-hmm. even at that age, which I don't think I have actually realized until this moment. But Were you listening to music back then? Were you really, really keen on like finding and listening to stuff or? I don't know. I listened to a lot of, because just my, so my dad's a priest. I listened to quite a lot of um, Christian like worship songs, yep. I guess. And when um, like, cause I, I, I also grew up religious uh, and um when you, <laughs> like just that. a little just so everyone can, can I see. flash my necklace as well you, you, you flash yours I'll flash mine <laughs> <laughs> when people say Christian worship song as a as someone who went to a high church 
It mm. makes me go like that because I'm like, do you mean the kind of folky kind I of mean, soft yeah. stuff? I mean, yeah. I used to go on Christian camp and we used to sing... New wine. Sort of, yeah. Okay. We used to sing around a campfire and, you know, I think... You don't know what we're talking about, it's great. I think all of that feeds in, like, uh, uh, who we are as people and musicians is a cumulative process, right? And I yep. think even that, which I look back on now and sort of find quite amusing, you know, kind of, I'm like, oh, that's sweet. Um I think that has informed who I am as a musician because it's a again a different kind of music making. It's slightly slightly more spontaneous, perhaps. Yep. Um, being prepared to just like sing in a relaxed environment. Yes. Um, and I try and feed a little bit of that into the choir, I guess, and mm -hmm. make sure that it is it can be a spiritual experience for those who want it to be a spiritual experience, but it can also be spiritual in another way for those who. Don't. I do know exactly what you mean because it's like the this is I didn't expect to be doing this deep this early. <laughs> uh, the religious process kind of has two aspects, which is the spiritual and the dogmatic. And I'm not using dogmatic in yeah, a critical yeah, yeah. way there. What I'm saying is some people find great meaning in the transcendent and the numinous, and some people actually find great meaning in the ritual and the mm. order and the practice. You know, um, and I, I get the sense that that's kind of. Is that is that what you were getting at there? It's like you know, it's, um, you, you know, there's a, some people do. Uh, you try and have both of those elements in your choir when you're uh, rehearsing mm. here, and, and when you're, you know, I, I, what do you say in the religious context? Not performing exactly. Leading worship, I guess. Leading worship. Yeah. When you're leading worship, you're trying to provide both those, the spiritual and some uh, ritualistic element of it. Yeah, totally. I mean, our chaplain here has a lovely saying, which I always reference. He says that the job of music and our role in the service is to kind of bring people to the threshold of worship mm -hmm. and they can choose whether they step over. That's interesting. I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up really kind of frustrated with the church because it. I was like, you cannot expect, <laughs> this is very boring. You can't expect people to transcend in this mm. environment. Because, you know, I, it's very, very kind of, well, it wasn't all high church. A lot of it was very middle kind of... Um, how are we doing team? Or oh, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, Billy Connolly always had this old joke uh, where um, he said, you know, he took his a grandson to a, a Catholic Easter procession and you see that, you know, you see Christ on the cross and apparently his little grandson goes, who's that? <laughs> he says, it's Jesus. And he goes, baby Jesus. They killed baby Jesus. He said, if Christians did that, I'd believe them. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and I really, really got into, uh, have you heard of Corey Henry, that organist? No. It's like, it's like very technically, um, what's the word they use? Uh, virtuosic uh, Presbyterian gospel oh, cool. uh, okay. organ. And so I, I really like that kind of stuff. But anyway, we're getting off track here because we're saying, you know, you, uh, you, know, you grew up in that environment. Um, and so it was always your natural zone. But then still, how do you get from harp to organ? Like, what, what's that winding up? Sorry, I get distracted so easily. I'm like, oh, another thing to talk about. Another I know, thing. Right, yeah. um, <laughs> harp to organ was an interesting one. So <laughs> it's actually a bit of a silly story. Um, I was 100% set on being a harpist. Mm -hmm. I had I had it all planned out. I was principal harpist of National Youth Orchestra at this stage. Wow. I was first study harpist at Junior Conservatoire. So I had a plan to basically go to conservatoire, be a harpist career sorted. Yep. Um, and then I, the other sort of option for me was thinking about Oxbridge and thinking about doing music at Oxbridge yep. and or similar and uh, doing harp alongside that and going on to conservatoire afterwards. And I remember my mum saying to me, have you thought about taking up the organ? And I was like, for God's sake, <laughs> mum, don't be ridiculous. I hate the organ. It's Even after all, you're, I want to do everything. Yeah, uh, but I was like, I have to focus. If I want to be a professional musician, I have to focus yep. on this instrument. I have chosen the harp. I'm sticking with the harp. And are you 17 years old, 16, 18? Mm, 16, maybe 15. And that kind of age, I, I think I was probably the same way. You're kind of going, right, no, I want this life yeah. and only that and anything else you is not You go a bit like tunnel vision, don't you? Yes. And so I sort of I sort of was a bit of a typical teenager, I think, and sort of went, oh, mum. And she said, oh, but did you know that a lot of Oxbridge organ scholars get grand pianos in their rooms at university? And Sold. I was like, I'll take up the organ because I played the piano as well. And it was, that was my kind of, if harp was my career in my head, piano was my like emotional outlet. Oh yeah, and, yeah, I love that. Uh, I love just sitting down at the piano and uh, trying things out and mm. doing, actually doing film covers. I used to write my own little versions of film scores. I'd forgotten about that. We'll um, try and catch some of these later on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, just so... Just as a brief stop, did we get, not not stop, as in a brief uh, oh, segue, did you get grades on everything? You know, grade eight, this, that, the other? What yeah, piano, viol uh, piano, violin, viola, harp. I did grade eight. <laughs> 
And I did my grade eight on piano when I was 27. So that's quite <laughs> impressive. Um, and Organ, I never did my grade eight. Never did your grade eight? <laughs> no. All right. I, um, th- but this is what the was Royal funny. The Hall's doors are slamming shut yeah, as we speak. But, it's, but this is the thing, because I took it up so much later. And I actually hated it at first, because the piano, if the piano was my natural expression, I sat down at the organ and was expecting it to be just as easy, just as natural, just as fluid. And suddenly I was like, I can't do this because I was having to rewire my brain to get the feet involved. And, yep. um, and I hated it. Well, the piano is like football, right? I, this, uh, this writer gave me this, you know, said why football is the most popular thing. It's because all you need is ball and direction. That's it. And then you can play. Piano, all you need to do is hit the note comes out and all of the notes come out with, you know, mm. uh, wind instruments. There's an, uh, uh, there's an element of coordination of, you know, different combinations of, of stopping and, and you know, embouchure and all this yeah, stuff before yeah, you can yeah. even get the note out. Organs like piano, but without the convenience. Like you have to be able to understand how the sound comes out in the first place. Is that right? Or Yeah, but I think more than that, I mean... It- you have to rewire your brain to play the organ. Because of all this. Because of the feet. So if you think about the fact that when you play the piano, left hand is bass, right? Imagine a world where left hand becomes middle and feet become Become bass. Yeah. So what you have to do is sever the connection between your left hand and your feet. Right. Essentially. And for the first year or Oh, because of course on piano you're doing all this, aren't you as well? You're, You're just sustaining, so you're affecting the tone. Yeah. Not the notes. So for the first year, I would say, or more on the organ, every time you move your feet, your left hand moves too. It's like, you know how if you try, there's a finger thing, isn't there, where like in terms of finger independence, two of your fingers are connected. Like the, these two, the, isn't I, it? Yeah, I can't remember which, I think it's, yeah, those two. And so it's really hard to just lift your fourth finger. Yeah, um, fourth finger, left hand being the weakest usually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So imagine that, but it's with your feet and with your left hand. And so I was that stuck on like grade three organ, having done grade eight on all these different instruments and was, so frustrated because you're like I should be I just want to get through this and you I was like why can't I do it right. but I think that made me want to then conquer it so in the same way like I think I may have got this right uh, I got this wrong sorry Bill Bailey the comedian said something like the, he wanted to do comedy because it's the only thing that didn't come easily to him mm. I, I may have got that wrong and sorry if I did that kind of thing right it's like totally. you did harp, piano, viola, viola it's like why can I not get past grade three on this? And did you say there was this kind of marionette motion almost every time your foot moves, yeah. your left hand goes with it? Yeah. Wow. And so that's what I mean about severing the link. So you really are rewiring your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something quite cool about that, I think. And I think I, I, I sort of felt that this could be an exciting thing if I could conquer it. And so when I ended up getting an organ scholarship, um, I didn't get a grand piano. Hmm. Uh, but I did get, I um, got an organ scholarship to one of the sort of highest commitment places in Oxford. So Magdalen College playing for eight services a week. Um, oh, wow. Rehearsing the boy choristers at 7.50 every morning. So it's basically like a full-time job on top of your degree. And I didn't wow. really realise this when I got it. I applied because um, the director of music was like, you should apply here. And I was like, okay. Okay, opportunity, I'll do it. You know, and were you thinking probably a Sunday a week, something like that? Well, no, I think I knew, I, 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 I knew on paper how many services it was. And I think I liked the idea that it was one of the most prestigious ones. And I was like, well, I'll get to that. <laughs> and I turned up so woefully unprepared for what, like, I, I loved my time there, but I had no idea what I was doing. When you started there, had you pushed past the grade three threshold? <laughs> yeah, I'd okay. done. So by that point, I was like grade eight standard. Great. Um, I did my grade Wait, How long did that take you? Three to eight? About eight. Two years, I think. Okay. But it's where I think once you get over the retraining your brain, actually, if you've got piano grade eight, it is. Once you know what grade eights are like as well. Yeah. I guess. Um, And imagine if you're the resident organist, that involves a great deal of high level sight reading. uh, Well, that was one of the things. I was good at really good, I'm sorry, I was really good at sight reading (laughs) on the piano, but I like prided myself on the fact that I loved sight reading on the piano. Oh, right. But I was so bad at sight reading on the organ because of the different brain process and so yeah I turned up I didn't know any of the music I'd never accompanied a choir before on the organ I'd done it loads on the piano all of this stuff and I it the way I describe it now is it felt like learning a new language Mm -hmm. it felt like I'd been dropped in a country with a language I didn't speak and I had to do a degree and a full-time job in that language and try and cope and yep. figure it out. And I wrote my resignation letter um, in my first term because I hated it. I found it so hard. Are you a conservative prime minister? <laughs> but seriously, it was one of those things where I was in tears the whole time and just was really struggling and thought, why am I doing this to myself when I could yep. be playing the harp? And did you think this is distracting me from my real yep. pursuits? 
And then I had that moment. I describe it as a Devil Wears Prada moment. You know, in Devil Wears Prada, where Andy is moaning at what's his face. You know who I mean, the guy. Andy and what's his face are having yeah. yeah. And she says, oh, like, I'm trying my hardest. And he says, you're not trying your hardest. You're like doing the bare minimum to scrape through and then moaning about it. Yeah, so you're suffering as a result of your own uh, insufficient responsibility. And now you're claiming that the suffering is just the fault of reality itself. Yeah. And so I had that moment and I sat myself down and I was like, are you really trying your hardest? Mm. And was like, actually, maybe not. And so I sort of had this moment in the holidays where I decided to move back to university two weeks early, I think. And I just said, I am just going to practice and practice and practice. So I basically started doing eight hours perhaps a day. And you were at Maudlin. Yeah. And term time is no joke at Oxbridge because it lasts for about four weeks and uh, start. Eight weeks. Eight weeks. Yeah. Okay, I was off by a factor of something. <laughs> but um, the point is, yeah, they're, they're not long. So that two weeks is actually you're coming back in, is this after Christmas? Yeah. So you're coming back on about like January 20th or something like that. I think even earlier. Yeah. Wow. And so I just, and from that point on, I basically did eight hours perhaps a day and... Sure enough, loved it. You know, it's not uh, rocket science when you put it all together, is it? Yeah. I did eight hours practice a day and then it went right from there. <laughs> but like, Funny another, that. Another great guy I interviewed, Paul Burke, he's a very, very good writer um, and a good radio writer and a forthright speaker. And he said, um, you know, people always say, oh, I'd, I'd give anything to play the piano. He's like, would you? Would you give six hours a day for 20 years? Yeah. Okay, no, probably not. <laughs> That's the thing. And I, I think I, I actually find it really important to talk about that sort of phase of my life and career because it's not easy being a musician. It's not easy doing anything, really. I feel like people who aren't musicians don't appreciate that. And I'm not, mm. I'm not woe is me for us here, but it's like, oh, you've got a dream. Do you do what you like? It's like, yeah, it's mostly imprisonment on a on the instrument. It's, it's hours and hours and hours, but I also think it's important to talk about it because I think all young musicians will go through a similar phase mm. of being like, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I need to stop. I need to take the easier route. And it's one of those things where it's like, we do all go through that. Yep. Some people talk about it, some people don't. Yep. Everyone goes through it and it's normal and it's natural. The people who and don't talk about it think it's not happening to everyone else. Exactly. Right. And so I think it's important that we kind of share the, the negatives as well as, as well as the highs and the lovely fluffy moments. So let's try and summarize for that section. It's Anna Lapwood's principles of practice. We'll make a little TikTok short maybe. So one of them is know that everyone has the same experience. Yeah. Right. Uh, another is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to derive from what you were saying, like the kind of the key gemstones. And one of them is um, you have to have a moment where you're uh, being very, very realistic about whether you are giving your all or yeah. you're not. And it's not in a kind of American sports movie, whip yourself on the back and, uh, but it's like, are you really giving it everything? Yeah. And if you're not, do you really want to? Yeah. You need to know that. Do you want to become good at this or do you want to, what would you say? Do you want the tolerate the sacrifices or do you just want the reward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally. noticed with diploma, it's like, I actually just want the reward. I just want to say yeah. I've done diploma. I don't want to actually play the pieces. Yeah. That was the kind of heartbreak because again, this remarkable teacher, one of the best classical piano teachers in the country. And I was like, I feel like I'm wasting his time and and and, uh, and wasting my money because we're here just plowing along at... Um, Fourth movement, Beethoven, op two, number one. And it's 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 basically a toccata. Yeah. So like, if you're gonna play that, it's gotta be two hours every night. And I was like, okay, I don't want it enough to do that. Yeah. So you're gonna have that moment. It is gonna require a big commitment, but if you really want it, just reckon with yourself about whether you want to put that sacrifice in. And also I think the other big thing is careers and life are not linear. I've seen you say this before. It's not, it's not well, it is linear in a way, but it's not like a straight line yep. where you start at the age of two mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm going to be a classical organist. Yes. And then you follow a line and then you become a classical organist. That's not how it works. So this is, if someone wants to be you, don't just listen to this and say, I'll just do that. Uh, but also <laughs> be yourself, don't be me. Um, but uh, yeah, it, 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 who I am as a musician is the result of constantly getting distracted, yes. getting distracted by the organ yep. and pursuing that instead of the harp. I yes. mean, like I wouldn't be doing any of this stuff I'm doing now. I wouldn't have met ben Benedict Cumberbatch if I played the harp. Well, I might have done, but um, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> like so many things have come 
about it's funny because I've taking t- random things. I thought you were on the precipice, like my, you know, when your brain prepares you for what you think you're about to hear. I thought you were about to be like, I've never met my husband, and said Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> I was like, Are you married to Benedict Cumberbatch? <laughs> I wish. No, joking. Let's talk about um, how that came about. Let's 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 go into some of this. Uh, now you know your crazy celebrity spotting lifestyle. <laughs> what happens? Do people just wander into the Royal Albert Hall and just want to watch the practice, or what? So, it, it, no, um, is the short answer. And actually. One of my great sadnesses is the fact that people can't just wander into the Albert Hall and listen to the organ because I think that'd be so great. And we are tr- trying to think of a way to open it up in, at night sometimes. In like a way that's secure the museum, and doesn't is, put yeah. anyone at risk. Um, but that is a challenge. Um, yeah. But essentially what happens is that because I'm there at night, I often overlap with the after party from a show or anything like that. And so the first time this happened was Bonobo. Okay. And... I went into practice and the, they were just finishing their after party or it was going on below the organ. Now, I remember that the organ is so colossal and so loud that when you play, it shakes the whole like foundations of the building if you're playing loud. And you can't hear anything else in the room. I so imagine, yeah. imagine being underneath the organ and imagine what must have been happening in that bar. And they were like, what? And so I was happily playing away. I think I was playing some interstellar. Because this will be like the only naturally occurring thing that goes down to like 20 hertz. Like, yeah, and you can yeah, feel yeah, yeah. those oscillations. Oh, it's amazing. Like yeah. the whole, when you use the 64 foot, which is the lowest stop, um, the whole thing goes out. You, oh, it's even lower than like 10 hertz. It's yeah, like, I, I, mm, I'm really bad at hertz. Okay. I don't know how, we can check. But 10 is like 10 times a second. So it, even that's hard to hear. You can. I don't know. We can check. Okay. It's low. Um, sorry, scientists, I forgot that wrong. Um... Yeah, so uh, I was practicing and they came I up and heard went. some people come on the stage because I have a mirror so I can kind of see. Um, and <laughs> Not like it's a car, you've got like rear view you mirrors. Have, you do have a rear view and some of them are actually car rear view mirrors. That's literally. amazing. Um, <laughs> and they shouted up, play the Takata and I was like, what? And they were like, Da-da-da. yeah, exactly. Yeah. They were like Takata and Fugue in D minor. I don't know why I went northern when I said that. Takata and Fugue in D minor. And <laughs> I played it. 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 It's, it's washing out. Yeah. <laughs> Osmosis. I played it and, or like a little bit of it, mm-hmm. and then said, "Come and have a look at the organ," because uh, I always think that's part of the responsibility. Uh, if you get to practice in a place like that, I try and m- make sure anyone who is there can come and have a look. You're the ambassador it's for the cleaners or the uh, security yeah. guys, whatever. And so they came to have a look, and then I was like, "Oh, so what are you guys doing?" And they're like, "Oh, we're Bonobo's band." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> um, and so yeah, I showed them the organ for kind of ten minutes, and they both looked at each other and went wouldn't it be cool if we had organ in the show tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm free. And they were like, okay, we'll take your number just in case. And then we, I got on with what I was supposed to be doing, which is actually doing some filming with ITV. And they came back on the stage with Bonobo himself, Simon, and the whole band. And they started shouting up more requests. And I played Thunderstruck and they joined in on the drums yeah. and all this. And yeah, I finished at six and got back to my hotel and had a text from the trumpeter um, Ryan and the guy gave my number and he said Simon wants you to play so I emailed the hall at six and was like I'm going to go to sleep for four hours but is this possible and woke up at 10 to an email saying it's possible well went into a sound check and we did it and it what was would be the obstacles amazing. if it wasn't possible well historically um, there's a fee for using the organ got it um, and so, all the business stuff basically yeah the business stuff and also just logistics of actually like they've got a smooth running show Introducing another component could on be a the last night. Thing. Yeah, but you know what? It was phenomenal. Do you play it on a tow mode? Didn't you? Yeah. Now, um, can we can we splice that footage in? Are you, are yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Okay, it's not not yet tightly controlled usage. Um, yeah, that's absolutely. So I saw I saw that, and I was very disappointed not to be at the show. Um, I've got a story about Bonobo that I have to tell off camera. Um, so yeah, that's how you came to my attention. Uh, and it's also I really like the angle that. You know, Bonobo is one of the dance music artists of our age mm. and that your classical music practice was disruptive to people having an after party. <laughs> after but it's, a- this is the thing. Uh, the whole point, when I when they made me an associate artist, the first thing I said to them is, I want the organ to be something people stumble across in context when they're not expecting it because that is when people have like extreme emotional experiences with the instrument. So in this case, no one knew it was happening other than the band. The, the orchestra on stage didn't know it was happening. Mm. So it was a total surprise. And when it first came in, it was like full organ. Now that organ is so loud that even with the loudest sound system you could, I mean, their tracks were deafening. Even with that, the organ drowns it out. Really? Well, not drowns it out, but like it It, it was it a serious contender. And it was the most incredible thing because you saw everyone go, what yeah. 
because you feel the air start to move and you're like, what, where, what's happening? At that particular break. Yeah. So it's like, so, you know, so you've had a whole show, probably about an hour and something, uh, at this re- loud but relatively even dynamic. Yeah. And then at the break just before the drop of a tomo, something bulges out even further yeah. on the top. And like you say, there's something interacting in the room. You yeah, can, can you feel yeah. air moving around because of all the pipes? Yeah. And it was, in, it goes back to this thing of religious experience, right? People were like, hands up in the air and it was like they were worshipping. It was really, it was really emotional. And yep. actually, just before I started playing, because I went up a couple of tracks early and just sat there waiting, I started crying because there was this amazing moment in one of the tracks before where it, it was all this like really, really loud bass stuff. And then suddenly the bass dropped out and it was just orchestra strings soaring up. Like the most beautiful harmonies and the disco ball was going. And I was like... My idea of what music is is so small and doing this kind of thing opens my eyes to the fact that like genre shouldn't be a barrier Mm. to enjoying good music. Good music exists in all different genres and it should just be about following the good music, not saying I will only play classical. Uh, You know, I... um... Rarely lost for words, but you know uh, that is that is absolutely it. It's 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 a really it's a meaningful thing to see, as you said, the world of classical and the world of modern dance coming together mm. without any incongruity. And um, and like you said, there is something I noticed this about. I don't know. I wasn't a very cool kid, so I might embarrass myself here. But in about 2011, when I was still doing stuff like New Wine, because I had like a lot of people, I had a like I had a kind of atheism dip in my mm. sort of till late teens and twenties. Um, I was watching them uh, and I was like, this is kind of like doing an impression of something that is transcendent, but it's just not hitting it for some reason. And then I would go to, again, you know, it's not very cool, but I I went to like, you know, Coldplay at the Etihad Stadium. Mm. And I was like, this is what they're trying to do with the worship thing. Like everyone's in the same moment. Like you say, people do worship gestures, hands come out and things like that. And, you know, there's a, uh, if you see a really, really like very, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, an artist who transcends beyond just being popular and people take them as very, very, very important to their lives. Lady Gaga is like that, you know, Kendrick Lamar is like that. People want to actually, you know, it's like a kind of religious scene. They want to, uh, you know, uh, get some tiny bit of contact with their Messiah, you know. And so it's really, yes, uh, I, I hope that you're going to be taking this further and that there's going to be some more interaction with the world of current popular music. A hundred percent. I think it's so important. And also musically, it's so fulfilling. And I feel like it is pushing me to be, I don't want to say a better musician, but a different musician, a, a, a broader musician. And what I've loved about the last year or so when my like musical world feels like it's blown wide open is I've actually become a much more confident player. I think that we all have self-doubt whether we're musicians or not. And a lot of being a musician is criticizing yourself and yeah. saying that wasn't good enough. Or, yeah. And it, obviously you try and do it in a constructive way, but there are, there's always self-doubt and going on. And I was really struggling with that. And then every, and then I started doing Bonobo and film covers and I just started to feel like I could be me at the organ. Uh, going back to talking about the piano, I felt like I went back to me, bit, me as a 16-year-old sitting at the piano for fun, playing my film covers. It feels like I've now got to that point yeah. 10 years later yeah. on the organ. And so when I then sit down and do a recital of the more sort of core classical stuff, I just feel that much more at home on the instrument. And what I love most about the bonobo side of things is that at every concert I've done since then, I've had a couple of people come up and say, Never been to a classical concert, never been to an organ concert, but I saw the Bonobo video and I wanted to come. And then they love it. And it's just about finding a way to show people that these instruments are so much more than they think. That's really, that is really exciting. And um, I like it when something that's very uh, old and assumed to be old in a kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's now not relevant, mm. you know, way, uh, makes a re-emergence in the culture and you see why it was valuable in the first place. So we've been, we've mentioned a couple of times Interstellar and I'm going to zoom in on that for a second because have you seen 
the video on YouTube of them recording it with Roger. Yeah, yeah. Do you know Roger? I do. He is such a phenomenal player. What's his full name for people who don't know? Roger Sayer. Roger Sayer. Um, he's a phenomenal player. He's an, a really, really lovely man as well. And he also has a really cute dog <laughs> that goes up to the organ loft with him. So if you go to the Temple Church organ loft, the first time I went to play there, I was like, what is on the floor? <laughs> because there's like dog hair everywhere. And I was like, what the hell is that? And then this little dog comes up and I think it's a... I think she's a golden Labrador. Um, but she just lies there and she loves organ music. I mean, a uh, very enviable position. Um, the So what's, what's, what's Roger's position there? Which, where, where's the church? And So this is Temple Church in London, which mm. is part of Temple, the kind of law place. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, the law place. The law place, Got you know it. what I mean. Yep. In, what's it, middle Temple? Inner Temple? There are lots of temples. Anyway. Um, this incredible church uh, it's been used for a lot of filming so Da Vinci Code was filmed there oh wow um, all sorts of things and yeah they used that organ for the Interstellar soundtrack and I think it's a good moment to just say that um, organs are all completely different every organ has a different character and that character is partly the instrument is partly the building so it means that actually you can listen to a recording and go that's that organ in that place yep um, whereas if you listen to a piano recording, you wouldn't go, ah, oh, yes, that would be the Steinway Model D. And it, that's not how it works. It, with an organ, they have individual characters, individual voices. And so that soundtrack is therefore tied up with the sound of that yeah. particular instrument. So um, is Roger the resident organist? At He's the director of music, yeah. Director of music. So um, what, uh, what with the process, because I'm not just going to do interstellar trivia, because, but the, this is uh, just exploratory before we sort of dig into the, the stuff. Um, what do you suppose they did? Do you think they like auditioned several church sounds and was like, that's the one? Or is this famous for being the one to go to for recording? I think it's used a lot for recording. It's mm -hmm. quiet around there. Um, and that's one of the big things. In I London, mean, hard in to get. Exactly. Finding, well, any anywhere really. Mm. And it's also not used as regularly as cathedrals say. So with a cathedral, you've got daily worship. Yep. Someone like temple, there isn't daily worship. So you've got more flexibility. Um, so no, I'm not I'm not sure kind of what the process was, but um, I know it was a very collaborative thing. And um, it, yeah, Roger is a genius. Mm. And I've loved actually watching his videos of, he's made arrangements of every movement from the soundtrack using the original score, but making it an organ solo. Yes. Um, and often it's layering himself multiple times and it, it's really, really cool. It's on his YouTube channel. So. And the, right, well, we'll have to link to that in the in the bio, but um, the, the um, where, where was I originally going? So yeah, when the uh, contemporary culture makes contact with something that is seen as archaic, but is actually, you know, very, very old in the same way that the oldest parts of the brain are seen as archaic, but mm. they're actually the most sophisticated, the things that keep your heart beating and you breathing, the yeah, things that yeah. we're too stupid to do. Um, so uh, why am I saying that? It's because there's a couple of... Ex uh, a couple of places I've seen uh, recently where like the, the roof of the Sistine Chapel, religion makes contact with secular mm. society again because there we find, ah, there's no other language in which to express the truly transcendent. And I saw Chris Nolan in that video we described. He, he was trying to do that PR-y thing where he's saying, we're not really religious, but yeah. this has to sound and feel religious. Mm. And the only way to do that is with the organ and with the sound of that temple. Yeah, um, And so... Um, and so is that an example of the kind of thing you're hoping to be doing as you go forward, trying to bring it back into contact with the modern culture to show that this is not an ancient sound because Interstellar doesn't sound like an ancient soundtrack. It sounds up to date. And it sounds, as, as we said, you know, transcendent and numinous. And Hans Zimmer also said it's like the original synth because yeah. you have to program it. Oh my gosh, it is like the original synth. I, I have this conversation with people so much and it... <laughs> That music, you're right, it does feel religious and it does um, inspire a sense of awe, which I guess works really well when you're talking about space because it's something that we can't quite understand. It's yes. so huge and the organ can do that because it can get louder and louder and louder and louder and you think mm. it can't possibly get louder than this. And, and it, it keeps it going. Does. Um, but I find it really interesting. when it, That is the music. Whenever I play it anywhere, people, it's like they just, every, everything stops and they just are completely absorbed in it. So there have been a couple of times where I've been playing it at the hall and the cleaners are often in and the crew are often in. And there's one time when they started whistling along and it was like, I find it incredibly moving every mm -hmm. time. And then most recently with um, Clang, Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> still can't quite believe it, but um, I played it to him and he, he was in tears. And you just think actually this music 
is good. It's really, really good music. And mm. what defines good music? Well, I think the fact that everyone cries when they hear it is a pretty good sign that yeah. this is good music we're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. There's something so moving about being a part of that process of knowing that you are communicating emotion in some way through mm. the vehicle of the organ and um, this incredible music. And I imagine the, the the piece that keeps coming back, you know, at rehearsal and you, and is this the thing that made you famous on TikTok playing that? Um, one of the things, is I think. Is it Cornfield Chase? Cornfield Chase. It's, mm. it's funny, actually, that I, I've posted it a couple of times and it tends to basically the sound will often get removed. So it tends to, yeah, I know it's really frustrating, but because it because it sounds so similar to the original, because that original is- Your, The audio signature is too close to the tempo. But it's, it's AI that does it. And so, um, yeah, the sound is often removed, which is quite funny. But um, it's definitely, it's the, my most requested thing. And I just, I love playing that music. It's such fun. And playing it at Letters Live, uh, which is the thing with Benedict, um, it was one of the most moving performance experiences of my life, I think. He read- um, the Nixon speech that would have been read if the moon landings had failed. And so this incredibly moving speech and that overlapped with me playing Interstellar to close the show. And Benedict Cumberbatch stayed on the stage and watched. And it was one of those moments where you just think, this is what music is about. It's about communicating emotion and yeah. putting into musical form the emotions that we are feeling having heard that letter and giving an outlet for those emotions to help people kind of experience it. People like you and I, who are very wordy people, right? Very, you can chat for ages about everything. I feel like always in pursuit of that moment where you actually can't describe it verbally. Yeah, 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 totally. And this was definitely one of those. And they're rare. And I suppose the hope is that you try and find more and more of them. Uh, letters live. And so uh, can you remember much of the, con uh, I know it's easy to find for anyone to Google, but um, the content of this letter for if they'd failed, was it, was it, was it a kind of despite failure, it's, we, we have to keep going. It was kind of in two halves. It was like thanking them for their sacrifice. And um, it, it was kind of a letter that reflected our awe at the magnitude of the universe and how little we understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second half of the letter was saying, it was, it was kind of a message of hope. And um, yeah, it was just one of those things where I was in floods of tears while I was playing on stage, which doesn't happen much. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. And it was just, it, it, you, sometimes you have performances where you feel like you go into a state of flow mm. um, and yep. it's quite rare, yep. <laughs> but it was one of those. And yeah, it would, I don't know, I get like tingles just thinking about it, but yeah. um, it's what's weird is then coming back to the real world. Yeah. Because you feel like you've, I don't know, you feel like you've glimpsed heaven. So, well, I mean, the, the space travel metaphor is appropriate in that case in the metaphysical language, yeah. Yeah, you feel like you've left and gone somewhere else and then you come back. This is the this is part of the, the sort of internal debate I was having when I was like sort of 15 and getting a bit 16, disillusioned with the religious process because I was like, why are we letting all the transcendent stuff be out there in the secular world? I don't know, for example, if you listen to, have you listened to Keith Jarrett? No. Remarkable uh, uh, pianist, pure improvisation is his main thing. Uh, I might, yes, I'm really bad at names, but I might have done. <laughs> the, the most famous recording being the Cologne concert, which uh, he, in 1970, I want to say eight, uh, arrived at the concert uh, hall in Cologne, was disappointed with the quality of the piano, sustain pedal didn't work, and so had to just adapt a technique that created a lot of sustain without the, the pedal. Mm. Anyway, so point is, uh, preconditions set up for failure. I think it sold five million records and is regarded as one of the greatest jazz albums of all time. And it's pure improvisation, and you can hear you can hear him making touch with God in that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, that is like, and I was like, what? I don't know what, um, I guess what I was saying was like, how is it that, how is it that the church doesn't have uh, the 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 most sort of um, yeah the most impactful transcendent experiences oh, but like I that. I would disagree. Uh, that, well, I think tell me yeah. about it. I think um, the beauty of choral music and choral worship is that it can yeah. in the right context. I mean, Evensong is one of the most incredible services. I would say to anyone, whether you're religious or not, if you can go to a choral Evensong, go yep. because you have choirs singing like the highest standard music every single day mm -hmm. and uh, music that spans so many, so many hundreds of years and uh, it, it's just happening for free every day in yeah. every city in, in the UK. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. And I often have moments of like transcendence in services. Yeah. It's a bit different when you're conducting, I guess, because you're part of You gotta keep of one eye on the road. Yeah, it's a, it, and you're trying to kind of 
uh, it, it sometimes in some ways it, it makes it easier to have a transcendent experience in that you are helping a group have a collective musical experience and all feel and think the same thing at the same time. Mm. In, on the other hand, you're focusing on doing a job. So if you get too emotionally involved in it, uh, it makes that quite hard. But it's, an, it's a phenomenal thing. And I think, yeah, with the right music and the right setting, it, it, Evensong is like geared for transcendent experiences. This is like, you know, the Philip, Philip Larkin wrote a poem called Church Going. Mm. And uh, I think the... Um, uh, sort of more, I, I suppose, cynical interpretation of it uh, is that, um, you know, he, Philip Larkin is saying, I wish I could be part of this process because everything about it is so transcendent, but I can't believe it's like, I can't believe the central claim. That's mm. for Larkin to deal with or for, uh, for someone else to interpret. But um, that is, we've been talking a lot about this quote recently, that all art aspires to the condition of music. And that, what that means is that music is kind of hard to argue with. Mm. You know, Mozart, Diaz, Ire. You can't, you can't argue that that's a nice, joyful, positive, and, you know, optimistic piece of music. Maybe, you, you know, you could say... I'm not about to argue that, don't worry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, um, maybe there's angles you could take on it, but when you listen to it, you're like, this is, this is dark. Mm. In a way that just it goes beyond... Ver, you know, verbal uh, analysis. And um, in the same way, it's like, you know, you can argue with the, the propositions of religion, you can argue with the, the practices. When you're in amongst the music, you can't argue with that. Mm. Even the most, you know, uh, committed non-believer uh, is still going to be moved by that, which is where we were going with that Chris Nolan interstellar thing. He was like, mm. all right, there are some things that when they're so grand, you can only go into the domain of religious aesthetics for. Mm. But it's funny, I think that this idea that like you can't argue with the DSRA being dark, I, I sort of get that. But I think also one of the beautiful things about music is that it can have so many multiple layers of meaning mm -hmm. and it can be dark and light at the same time. It can contradict, it can hold contradictions yes. in itself, if that makes sense. Um, and there's a whole sort of area of musicology that looks at this idea of music being sticky. It attracts emotions, it attracts memories. And so everyone will have a different set of um, memories that kind of crop up when they hear a certain piece of music. And so for one person might hear a, a, the Diazire and say, actually, that reminds me of this beautiful moment of happiness, despite the fact that it is a dark piece, right? It can be associated with something like the reason I, uh, my, I curled into a grin when you mentioned it is because I first heard it in an episode of Father Ted called uh, Cigarettes, Alcohol and Rollerblading. Right? And it's like there's a, there's a piece of Brahms, the Brahms Intermezzo in A major, piano piece. And I, um, it, it's, well, I, it, you can't sort of reduce it to being happy or sad, but it's, a, it's in a major key. It's in many ways light and beautiful and sweet. Um, and I, when I was learning it, I remember my mum had a health scare and um, they, she, she was fine, but they thought she might have cancer. And I remember sitting there learning it with tears streaming down my face. And whenever I hear that piece now, that's how I hear it. I hear it as something tormented and um, sorrowful and uh, like getting right to the heart of those emotions. Mm -hmm. And yes, it, on paper is this light piece, but not for me. Yeah, because of the association and because of the context. Well, fair enough. So... Um... I uh, I will have to uh, do a little side uh, a sidestep uh, back into uh, it's hard, that's what that's the problem with when I'm doing these kind of conversations and we go into something very deep. I now yeah, have to yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. It's how hard, do we get it? here? <laughs> it's great, but now I have to reverse yeah. and go back on to talk about meeting Ludovico and Audi. Yeah. Oh, that was cool. I I don't know about you. Did, when you were a kid, did you just like listen to his music the whole time? Hear his music the whole time? No, I was on Keith Jarrett. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I think he was my Keith Jarrett equivalent. Like Probably. everyone at my school played. There was one piece of his Lay On. I think it is. That's one that goes. Yeah. I'm definitely also saying it wrong. I'm saying it as little primary school version of me. Lay On. I think it's Le On or something. Anyway, um, it, this beautiful piece, everyone played it. And uh, he's just one of those names where, I, I don't know, he's been there all the way through my life. And so I turned up to do a, a practice session at the hall. Um, and I had, I've now learned to check who is in the hall the, just before I start, just in case, so that like, I don't walk up to someone and go, oh, hi, who are you? And it's someone really famous that I should mm -hmm. know. So I knew he was there. Oh, sorry, Majesty. And I, I basically was like, I'm just going to turn up a tiny bit early just in case, and I'm going to get the organ out early. You kind of unpack it and um, 
<laughs> you mean like you it. take things off the manuals and stuff? I, you, take, you open the doors and turn it all on. And so I just thought, I'm going to go half an hour earlier than I would normally. And I got cleared to do this by, with the hall and everything. And they kind of joked about it being like, oh God, you're going to get Ludovico, aren't you? And I was like... <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I just started playing. I, I was like, I'm going to play the loudest thing I have because they were like, he's still downstairs. So I was like, I'm going to play the loudest thing I can. And sure enough, it's like, I don't know, it's like pouring. What do you do to get beetles out of a hole? You know what I mean? It's like smoking yeah. out. Yes. They just like, everyone like comes you, out like So that. Uh, Anna Lapwood smoked out Ludovico Iannaudi. <laughs> exactly. And so I was, I was playing away and I, the standard thing I heard, there's a kind of corridor and I heard people standing in this corridor and I looked around and I was like, <laughs> And it was him and a couple of his band. And I shouted out down and was like, do you want to come and have a look? Hmm. And um, yeah, I, he, he was asking all sorts of questions about it and how it worked. And so I, I said, do you want me to play you a little bit? And I played him this bit of Interstellar. And I had thought to set my phone recording before any of it. I basically, as soon as I started playing, set my phone there recording and then forgot about it um, because I had a feeling that it might happen. And yeah, he, so he listened to me play Interstellar and... It was amazing when I watched it back, seeing how he like listens with his eyes. So he's there watching every move as he's listening, figuring out how you're doing it all. Um, and then he sat down and had a go and did this amazing, really beautiful improvisation that lasted probably about 10 minutes. And I was pulling out stops for him. You use and, any pedal? Um, yeah, I, I showed him how to, and he was actually really good at it. He got it quickly and kind of was doing bass notes with the pedals and um, yeah, it was it was really, really moving. And then uh, he played a little bit of loud stuff and then the crew came, his crew came on and they started singing like Italian, I think it must be some big Italian song that everyone sings in Italy or something. Anyway, they started like singing it as loud as they could. It was da 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 Yeah, we know that, don't yeah. we? Copyright bots, yeah. stay off. <laughs> and so and they started, and it was again, just one of those things where I... Couldn't quite believe it had happened, but also it was like it, the hall knew it was exactly what I needed because normally if I'm doing a hall session, I basically have a lion the morning of, a, of the session, sleep until midday and then do work after that. But that day I'd had to start at 7.30. I'd had a full day. I'd had to go to an event in London. So I was knackered and I was kind of like, oh, I really don't want to do this tonight. And I turned up and he was there. And then I was like, ah! <laughs> and I was so wired that I like, had the loveliest practice session because I was so You excited. had an adrenaline kick like no other. Yeah. How do you, uh, I was going to say sleep at night in a way that sounds accusatory, but it doesn't mean that. I mean, you uh, have an incredibly uh, busy life, very, very active all over the place. Um, and I, because I've been following you on Instagram since the Bonobo gig, mm. I see you You seem to be on a train every day going yeah. somewhere else. How do you, what, A, what's the plan, uh, you know, for, are you, are you currently just trying to get as much opportunity in as you can while you make hay while the sun's shining? Mm. You know, what's the plan for, uh, how sustainable, for example, is it to keep going to the Albert Hall to practice in the middle of the night and then go over to uh, back to here and all over the place? I know it's a wordy question. But... No, no, it's a really good question. It's what I ask myself a lot. Um, in terms of what my plan is, I think I... Um, I'm, firstly, I wish there were three of me because I hate having to say no to things. There are so many things that um, I would love to do and there are just simply not enough hours in the day. Uh, and so it's a difficult thing at the moment, actually trying to keep looking at the different things that are coming in and say, right, what's a, what's the goal? How do you not get distracted by all the shiny things mm -hmm. and keep like true to yourself as a musician? Um, that's that's a, a challenge. And uh, it's something that I explore a lot with, I've got an amazing manager, Claire, who I trust with everything. I mean, she is the person who will sit me down and be honest with me and be like, this is maybe a good idea. I'm not so sure about this. When did you get taken on by management? Uh, we started working together three years ago now mm -hmm. and genuinely the best decision I've ever made in my life. Uh, she is formidable. Uh, she is just a, a total force of nature and genuinely as a musician, having someone you trust and who you trust to be honest with you is the most important thing because... Yes. It, it, you will get criticism. You'll be told you're doing it wrong from all sorts of different people. And it's really important to have an external voice helping you figure out who to listen to and who not to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess so in answer to what's the plan, um, try and keep doing what I'm doing, but with um, 
like factoring in trying to bring as many opportunities to other people as possible if that right. makes sense like that's a huge part of what i do and what i do here um but yeah trying to open up the organ world to more people trying to open up the classical music world to more people um that that's a massive part of it how sustainable is it i kind of of the mentality that at the moment i love it and i can do it so i'm going to keep doing it yeah. until i can't do it um in terms of how i manage sleep um I think Oxford prepared me for sleep deprivation. Okay. And so what how it tends to work is I am sleep deprived in term time. So for eight weeks of term, um, you don't get much sleep. And then maybe once every couple of weeks, you'll have a day which is quieter and I will let myself sleep until I wake up. Mm -hmm. I just don't set an alarm. Yeah. Sometimes that means I sleep till one in the afternoon, two in the afternoon, but I try and listen to my body. Um, and then in the holiday time, uh, when things are calmer, I let myself have as many lines as I want, need. And I think that is the system that I've sort of developed. I started it in Oxford and I don't, it's probably not healthy, <laughs> but um, it, it, it seems to work. I love being busy. I just, I, I don't like free time. I don't like sitting doing nothing. I get anxious when I sit doing nothing. But yeah, um, yeah. I think this is why I'm, I'm I, sometimes I basically just grill people for free career advice. And I think <laughs> that's what, that's definitely something I'm having to grapple with is the fact that it's like, I'm always... Um, in a zone where I'm like, I've got all this stuff to do, but I have protected free time. Mm. I get into it and I'm like, I need to do that stuff. Yeah, I'd rather be doing that stuff. I'm more relaxed. I've got a friend here at Cambridge called Rob Henderson um, who said he noticed when he was about 30 that he doesn't feel relaxed unless he's working. Mm. I don't know why that is. I think it's something to do with staving off the anxiety of future yeah. responsibilities. So... Um, uh, I also saw that you went, uh, you were traveling recently somewhere very, very distant in the world. Zambia. You were in Zambia. What were you doing there? Oh, Zambia is my favorite place in the world. Um, <laughs> so I started working there when I was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. um, There's a charity called the Muse Trust. And they, when I was in my second year at Magdalen, they put out an advert saying they wanted two Oxford students and two Cambridge students um, to go to Zambia for a month and teach music. And it was a kind of pilot thing they were trying out. And I applied straight away because I love traveling. I love working with kids. And it just seemed like the kind of perfect fusion of my life. Mm. Um, and so I went out for a month. And it was quite funny, actually, because we basically got like dropped there. And they were like, here's a contact. Off you go. Um, so we had to do a lot of kind that of... That sounds like a nice James Bond film. <laughs> like it it was, I mean, and... well, <laughs> we, the car we were given, I don't drive, uh, but the car, one of the others did, the car we were given was this <laughs> Right, massive, like, I don't drive. <laughs> I don't drive, they gave me a car. Anyway. No, uh, but it was this massive Jeep and, the pedals and it didn't have locks on the doors and it didn't have a working fuel gauge. And I remember we just had to put petrol in and hope that we had enough for the journey. <laughs> and there was one day when we got it wrong and on a hill it went and stopped and we and it was amazing like everyone came out and helped us push this car up the hill um so i basically went and fell in love with the country and the people and teaching and all of this stuff and thought i have to go back and then fast forward to moving to pembroke so a couple of years later um my first year here i was thinking where should we go for a corner tour and i was like Zambia, um, because I was naive and uh, thought it's not stressful running a choir tour at all. Let's go to a quite stressful place. Um, so we took the choir to Zambia and it was transformative for me, for them. Um, when you think about the fact that as a student in Cambridge or Oxford or anywhere at university, you can get so kind of tunnel visioned and an essay crisis can feel like the worst possible thing. That's ever happened to anyone. Yeah. yeah. And then you take that group of people to a country where they are dealing with proper problems and they are working with kids who um, are double orphans, HIV, AIDS, all of this stuff. So we're like, talking about their problems are actual immediate survival problems, not yeah. existential and self Exactly, and I think it, it's a, a, watching them have these moments of kind of realisation, it was really moving. We cried every single day of the trip and not in like a, this is horrible way, in like <laughs> a, this is a, this is emotionally intense way. Yeah, yeah. And, they also, I think, realized that like they are so lucky to have been born in the right set of circumstances. The people we work with are just as bright and just as talented and just as able and just as capable of doing a Cambridge degree, mm -hmm. but they're not born in the right place for it. No. And I, yeah, so basically to cut a long story short, I've been leading trips there ever since. Um, so I take a trip every year, normally take out four people. 
um, and different four people every time. And we teach music in local communities, schools. Um, the idea is that we are trying to make music something that's seen as a basic human right and try and develop the music in, in Zambia so that actually being a musician is a valid career option. Yep. Um, yep. And it's, I think, yeah, I don't know how many years I've been doing it now, six, seven. I think we're starting to see real change happening. I do know what I, I mean, for obvious reasons, I'm incredibly sympathetic to what you said just then about trying to bring music to people and trying to emphasize the fact that it is a necessary part of life, yeah. not a luxury choice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, those of us who are in, uh, you know, aesthetics and um, the reason the reason I'm going down this line is because I am in advertising where you have to justify aesthetics. Like, why yeah. will this music make anything better? And so you end up in that line of thought quite a lot. And um, there's this, I don't know, there's been an emphasis in the last five years on very, very serious, very cynical things, things that are not optimistic. I'm, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because we went to see the Halle, mm. our, our local in Manchester, um, play the score to the movie E.T. with the movie on in the background. My friend was conducting that. No way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, this, uh, that's very cool. I noticed that I was like, this is just too sincere to have been made now. Mm. It believes too sincerely in the goodness of, of the human spirit. Mm. Um, and so anyway, so there's, yeah, there's been a great emphasis on uh, everything has to be about informing, everything has to be about educating. But it's things like the, the music, uh, it's like, what's it doing if it's not educating people? It's giving people a reason to live. Yeah. It's giving you something to do once you have survived. Yeah. It's giving you a reason to survive. Totally. And I think it's uh, it's something that comes up a lot when I'm, I'm sort of trying to help with fundraising for the charity and you get people saying, well, why should I donate to this when there are people starving? And it's like... Well, there are starving in another way. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, actually, I think particularly when we're talking about Africa, the focus can be on, well, let's make sure everyone can actually like survive, which is obviously incredibly important. But for what? But it's... And it's like, that's where we then come in at the next step. Hopefully, yes. once the money's been raised to make sure that people have enough food and water and all this stuff. It's like, everyone deserves happiness. Everyone deserves yes. something that is going to bring joy. And music can be a really easy way to inject that into, into a life. And I think one of the things that I always find really moving when I'm working there is that when we work with young children, often what we're doing is essentially trying to give them the chance to be children. Yes. Because in many of the communities that we work with, they're forced to grow up so quickly. So mm -hmm. from the age of six, they're helping bring up their little siblings. They're yeah. going to get the water there. All of this stuff, like they they don't have the luxury of being a child. Yeah. And you, get, you do a music workshop and you do silly singing games and things like that. And they are in hysterics. And it's just so lovely to see. And it's yeah. like, everyone should have the chance to laugh. Everyone should have the chance to do something for fun. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Have you seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy? <laughs> Have I seen Lord of the Rings? <laughs> I once... <laughs> Go on, let's have it, let's have it. <laughs> I love Lord of the Rings. I'm a massive geek. Um, <laughs> when I was a teenager, I was watching it and it was when I was in NYO in the National Youth Orchestra and I was in charge of the social media. I was one of the people who had access to the social media account um, and the Twitter account. And I tweeted from the wrong account, sing to me, Aragon, sing to me. <laughs> I tweeted it from the MIO Twitter account and it went out on all their social media platforms. I couldn't delete it. And everyone was like, what's the National Youth Orchestra saying this for? <laughs> Thank God it was only that that you said. It's true. But yes, yeah, so yes, I have seen Lord of the Rings. Okay, extended? No. Hmm. I'm, so, I'm so sorry. No, no, it's quite all right. Um, do you remember the final shot, Return of the King? Um... Yes, where they're up on the thingy looking down on him. No, no. no. I'm not that much of a geek. The very, very, it's, it's fine. This is, this is just my way of establishing some uh, authority on something <laughs> after such a glowing career of someone younger than me. No, um, the final shot is uh, Sam Wise returns to his wife and kids. Uh, okay, in yeah. In the Shire. And I was like, there's a reason, I've, I've been thinking, there's a reason they put that shot at the end. And it's kind of suggesting that this is what it was all in service of. Mm. The freedom for children to be children and for you to have a harmonious family life. And you were bringing that, some of that, an element of that to Zambia. That was mm. a big part of it. It's like, it's 
a human right to be able to be a child and to hear music. And yeah. it's quite, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a deep goal. And so you'll be doing this, I imagine, for years to come. I hope so. I mean, also, it, it's so easy, as I said, to get distracted by shiny things. Um, and Benedict Cumberbatches and things like that, th those things that happen. And actually, for me, the most important thing is trying to bring musical opportunities to as many people as possible. And Zambia is an amazing reminder of that. Every time I go out, I it's, I sort of recalibrate my brain yeah. and look at my diary and think, am I choosing the right things here? Am I am I sticking to who I am as a musician, as a person, and um, my kind of goals in, in that respect? Am I doing enough, basically? Um, my mentality is that like you never know how long you have to make a difference. So you may as well just do as much as you can while you can. I was thinking that, not to get too uh, bleak, but recently I've had a, a cause to think about the whole eternity question. Yeah. And um, the, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not like an objective fundamentalist on religion, which is my way of saying I don't believe that the religious process was primarily at first a way to describe, you know, the nature of reality. Mm. It's more than that. It's something else. Despite that, one of the questions people ask is, you know, is there any life after this? Mm. And one answer is, well, if you assume there isn't, it means you have a great responsibility to do as much good as you can yeah. on this side of it. But also, I mean, going back to what you said about E.T. and the fact that you're not sure if it would be made now, I, I know exactly what you mean in that I feel like there is so much negativity and there, if you focus on it, there is so much to be miserable about. Mm -hmm. But also there is so much light and there is so much love and there is so much happiness and joy and beauty. And I don't know, I just uh, try and be a vehicle for that in some way and I it's a funny thing if for example if I'm having a bad day which happens to all of us and sometimes you just wake up and you're miserable I always try and say right how am I going to get out of this and I basically say I'm going to try and focus on brightening one person's day today by buying them a coffee or doing something or whatever it is and nine times out of ten that makes my day turn into a good day because you take it off you and you make it about someone else and I don't know, I just think there's something about that in terms of like uh, uh, trying to live your life in a way that makes things better for other people as much as you can, that brightens their day somehow through music, through whatever, I don't know, through just being happy and smiley. And um, I don't know, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, no, it certainly is. And I think it's a good jumping off point to say that the most uh, clearly evidenced way to improve your life is to improve someone else's. Yeah. So there we have it. Anna Lapwood, thank you for talking to me. Should we go play some organ in a minute? Yeah, amazing. Let's do that. <laughs> 